everyone. Welcome back to the Minute Women podcast. My name is Grace. And I'm Linnea. And we are here today with uh, some fabulous guests. We are here with the gals from Just Watch Me podcast, which is a comedy Canadian podcast. So, I mean, this has been a long time coming. Uh, We've known about Just Watch Me pod for oh my gosh, months now, and have been like in talks and communication, and finally we're here, Uh, and you know, just let it be known that it was a struggle even getting here today, but we're here, (laughs) we're ready to record, everyone is um, quarantining away from each other, this is a fully separated podcast episode, Uh, but yeah, we're happy to have the ladies here, so I will let them introduce themselves. Well, we are so happy to be here, finally, and we should say that you guys are coming onto our podcast in June, so we're so excited about that, too. Yes. It's like yeah. two-for-one deal. Um, but yeah, we're the Just Watch Me we're the Just Watch Me gals, and I'm so glad that you introduced us as the gals, because I love <laughs> referring to people as gals, referring to myself as a gal, um, us as a team as a yeah. gal, gals. Is that what we're called? Yeah, and Kate... Kate originally hates it and is on me all of the time for saying it but no no no. I'm speaking your language like I I love it I love it some might even say you overuse it oh so yes I will say that we have Olivia and we have Katie and uh, those are the gals I was talking about so are you guys both from Toronto no I'm in Hamilton yeah so I now I'm now in Toronto but I grew up in Winnipeg like that's all I'll leave it at oh okay (laughs) I'm very, I'm, I'm okay. nomadic. Okay, very, very nice, cool. Very nice. That's awesome. We, uh, for the last couple of years, we've curled with two gals from Winnipeg. Oh, cute. Um, now I can't stop no, saying I gals. No, I embrace it. I, like, <laughs> I love it. Every time I immediately look to Katie on the screen and I'm like, oh God. Yeah, we're going to ostracize <laughs> Katie. No. I was like, if I hear gals one more time, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's oh. good that you bring up Winnipeg because that's an excellent segue into the Heritage Minute that we're going to be discussing today. I love Prairie. uh, I love Prairie Minutes. Yeah. So, I mean, she's not quite in Winnipeg, but she's in Western Canada. We are going to be discussing the Emily Murphy Heritage Minute. Oh, I am Miss I am a person. Love her. How selfish of her to (laughs) be like, I'm a person. (laughs) Yeah. She wanted so much. (laughs) I know. She's just asking for so much. That Heritage Minute is actually really interesting, though, because it's a very, like, strange because it's just her from the shoulders up sitting talking but the reason is because the actress was like eight months pregnant at the time oh so why'd they pick her that's what i said i mean she's really good i will say the line of like like i emily murphy and all canadian women after me persons under the british law I was like, yeah, that's a good line. It's pretty iconic. It's pretty iconic. It's really hard to place that one in terms of time because I feel like they don't do a great job of her makeup looking like she's from the past. No. She just has like a grungy, smoky eye from the 90s. But they're yeah. like, just pretend it's the 20s. <laughs> I know you guys probably talk about this every week because this is like, this is your shtick. But, you know, we're new here. So, like, can that, can we just have a moment for, like, the production of how these minutes get made? Like, I have a lot of questions. Um, oh, yeah. Especially, like, who's who's the director? Like, who's designing these minutes? Like, that's what I want to know. Like, could we not have been a little bit more inventive with just, like, than a monologue with this one, you know? But, I mean, who am I to judge? <laughs> so we talked to Julian Richings really early on in our podcast, who was the man who played A.A. A. Milne in the Winnie the Pooh Heritage Minute. 
and he was like it's a commercial crew so mm-hmm. all of the people doing the filming and the directing their normal gig is filming like television commercials so the goal is to be like as efficient as yeah. quick as punchy as possible and exactly. i feel like that really comes off in a lot of the heritage minutes and he explained it as that like he went and he is in two heritage minutes that he recorded the same weekend and he said that you know you just went in and you just like banged them out and he said it was great he said like they paid well it was like the most efficient and he just said you like you go in you get your costume you like learn your line you say your line you do your thing and then you go home and uh then you get paid uh so i think yeah they were definitely especially in the 90s when they were kind of you know um putting them out very frequently and in big dumps um i think that it was probably just like the quicker that they could get through that the better i imagine it as like a set and it's like nelly mcclung's room here and then it's like um, Christopher Robin and the bear like over here and then it's like it's like and a then museum it's, yeah just like a museum and like and they're just like and action and moving on and then... I should have asked from the top but do you guys have a favorite heritage minute? oh yeah um I have to think about this the I feel like the two that I saw most frequently in my youth was the mm-hmm. like Canada means village one Mm-hmm. oh yeah oh yeah Jacques yes Cartier. and um the other one where there's a bunch of irish immigrants coming into the country and they're yep, just the orphans irish yes orphans. and they're just like listing last names and they're like o'brien o'donnell oh and you're like johnson sir molly johnson we need to keep our irish name <laughs> and then it's like they say their names and they're like molly johnson and then he's like patrick patrick is it o- is it o'brien I, no i just completely made and that then, up i have no idea but then there's but then there's a third little girl and she just goes <laughs> and then they just like pay an offer and even when they do the closed captioning like it doesn't say her name like they don't like, nobody's sure <laughs> nobody's sure she, just, she was so irish yeah they didn't even know what she was saying yeah (laughs) what about you katie do you have a favorite oh gosh i mean the list just goes on um (laughs) honestly i do i remember seeing them but in preparation for this i went and watched them because i didn't really have one that stuck out in my mind it's more that i have like the idea of heritage minutes as being a canadian thing that we all kind of like sit with and know Mm -hmm. yeah Um, but i'm gonna be honest like not very many of them left a super lasting impression on me yeah is that really cruel no um and i think and i rediscovered them just from from loving your show but i also think um a lot of the like true like amazing 90s ones are maybe a little bit i was a little bit young for those that could be yeah there are also like there's a couple uh heritage minutes that i love because they would not fly today on television the louis riel one they straight up hang a person they hang a guy and they're just like ta-da um the the one that kind of sticks out in my mind is like the underground railroad one and uh nitro uh one are both like it's like we wouldn't portray uh african canadian people or um uh immigrants of any kind kind of the way that we did in the 90s like it's just like not kosher anymore yeah like let's give them some really thick derogatory accents yeah exactly uh but again like those are episodes that like as a kid like i remember seeing those all the time and it's like they just kind of stick in your mind but then it's kind of this this project this podcast has allowed grace and i to kind of go back and recognize how uh 
you know, those minutes probably wouldn't be made today, at least like they were. So, (laughs) yeah. I think the Underground Railroad one is one that does really stick out in my mind, Mm -hmm. and I remember seeing that all the time. Yeah, I don't think that it would probably be, we would probably have it be so self-congratulatory, like, yeah, as, exactly. a, as a point of Canadian pride, which I th- we would probably be a little bit more critical of that and maybe examine that a little bit closer. Exactly. how that one was kind of done. Yeah, because yeah. it's very much like this nice white lady solved racism <laughs> in <Yes>. Canada. <laughs> it's also nice to be able to have these conversations, though, about the Heritage Minutes because I'm a really firm believer in that, you know, there are really bad parts of any history but I mean Canadian history included Canadian history doesn't you know escape that and it's not so much about kind of erasing those parts of history but like learning from those and moving forward and I think that there is something really nice about the heritage minutes that allows us to kind of you know see what was important to the political and national pieces of heritage in Canada you know 25 years ago and to now see kind of where we have moved forward and what like our focus is now like the newest heritage minute that just came out uh, about insulin or uh the one previous to that that was about um Oscar Peterson Oscar Peterson yeah um yeah so it's nice to kind of see that growth and development yeah as as part of our heritage part of our national and not history. To, yeah <laughs> examining the heritage minutes is, can be a part of our heritage now too you know? yeah exactly, exactly. meta history to totally changed the vibe but i can i change my answer because i just remembered that my my actual favorite heritage minute is uh the laura secord one. Oh, yeah. oh that's yeah, a that's, great one that's lots of classic. falling in the woods that was the first one really yeah. that's the very first heritage oh my god minute. yeah yeah i literally remember yeah. like watching it on they tv nailed and being it. like so that's where the Laura Secord chocolate is from. It's a person. Like, very cinematic. Very yeah. More cinematic than the one we're doing today, which is just <laughs> pose. Yeah. <laughs> In a chair. Yeah. Can uh, we talk about Emily Murphy, suffragette? Let's get into female it. Female politician, magistrate let's person. Do it. All right. So Emily Murphy is born Emily Ferguson, and she was born in Cookstown, Ontario, and was the third child of Isaac Ferguson and Emily Gowan. She was born on the 14th of March, 1868. Isaac Ferguson was a successful businessman and property owner. Emily had many prominent relatives. She had relatives in business, politics, and law, including two Supreme Court justices. Her maternal grandfather was a politician and newspaper owner named Ogle, which I think is a name that needs to come back. Is that with an A? Nope. Like O-G-L-E. A-U? Yeah, how's that spelled? O-G-L-E. Ogle. That's Ogle. iconic. Interesting. <laughs> I just think we got to revive it. You got to bring it back. Augie would have a rough childhood. Would have a rough time on the playground, I think. Or maybe he would, like, learn some uh, resilience, you know? <laughs> you know, at a young age, yeah. That would be his life story. It's just like, I was bullied relentlessly by the name Augie. <laughs> why well my name is augie and they're like oh it makes sense and now i'm on the 20 dollar (laughs) bill so emily therefore grew up in a family that frequently discussed legal and political matters so she sounds like a great time (laughs) just like a four-year-old being around conversations of just like voting rights and stuff what an exciting childhood when Prime Minister John A. Macdonald visited the Fergusons, Emily recited poetry for him. Aww, that's Aww. sweet. What a strange life. He was also probably so drunk 
as we know about our research on Johnny McDonald. This is McDonald's. the best poem I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's so strange to be a prime minister and go to someone's house and, and they're just like, let our children perform poetry for you. And he's just like, I'd really rather not. I think that's a, that's the strangest thing about being a, like a Victorian young daughter, right? Like you have yeah, to like yeah. you're expected to like fucking do poetry and play yeah. piano. Yeah, and so shit. like okay, you guys, I went to an all girls school and this was like something we did on the regular. So like on so in grade seven, we had to memorize a poem and and recite it at like a poetry night, and it was truly like. It was the worst. I, I really hated it. I don't I always have had like a deep hatred for poetry. And maybe Emily does too. Yeah, maybe Emily hates Honestly. poetry. She's just like, I'll never write a poem again. <laughs> oh, do you think these were poems she no wrote? Way. Probably no not. Way. But I'd say, love it if it were. I love she'd be like, The sky is blue and so No, are no. You, she was like Johnny doing McDonald. Shakespeare. She was doing Shakespeare for sure. She was a high-class yeah, child. She to talked, be about, or not she talked to about politics be. at the dinner table. She's the least approachable <laughs> six-year-old ever. She'd be one of those kids now that would have gone on Ellen DeGeneres and, like, recited her, like, political findings. <laughs> <laughs> so besides politicians, uh, the, the Ferguson children really enjoyed hearing stories from their uncles, who were both lawyers, Politics made a deep impression on Emily and her brothers, three of whom would go on to become lawyers themselves. As a child, Emily frequently joined her two older brothers, Thomas and Gowan, on their adventures. Much to the dismay of their mother, the Ferguson children were known in town as the young Ferguson devils. Oh. (laughs) Their father, on the other hand, really encouraged this behavior and often had his sons and daughters share responsibilities equally. The one exception was in punishment uh, because the father would whip her brothers while... Oh, my God. The two girls' punishment is they just stand outside the door crying while this happens. So, cool dad. Oh, my God. I was reading it, and I was like, oh, cool. What a, like, awesome dad. He's like, girls and boys should be treated equally. Psych. Let's beat children. Yeah. That's less awesome. A little less. That's like the moment where you find out that Johnny McDonald, who I just crapped on, watched his brother get murdered by their butler. Yeah, there's always just like (laughs) a little childhood trauma in there. Yeah, it's not cool. That explains later uh, erratic behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Such as alcoholism. Yeah, or trying to be prime minister. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Or being like, I should be the guy. Yeah. (laughs) It's me. Just John A. McDonald, like, I'm the one. <laughs> no, I should be the guy in charge. No, it should be me. I should yeah. be the one. It's me. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Yeah. So like you, Olivia, uh, Emily attended an all-girls school. Oh. A very prestigious all-girls school in Toronto. Which one? It was called Bishop Strike Ooh, Band. Yeah, it's Strachan. still like a really famous school. Uh, all-girls school in oh. Toronto. Yeah. I'm sure it's, it's very expensive. It's very expensive. <laughs> Well, I think in this at this time it was pretty expensive as well. She is one of very few that gets to go. And she's a fervent reader and she educated herself in this way as well. So when she's not in the classroom, she's just reading on her own time. She like sounds said, really like fun. a snooze. She sounds boring. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'd be her friend. <laughs> 
She doesn't sound super exciting so far. Listen, I'm on Team Emily. Like, she's getting educated. She's taking her education seriously. She's interested in current affairs. I'm, I'm, I'm Team Emily all the way. She's a little Rory Gilmore, to be honest. I'm just gonna say it's gonna get worse, Accurate. and I don't think you want that statement okay. associated. I'll hold. I'll hold. Yourself. I'll hold my fire. But what I will say. <laughs> yeah, I was like, don't you? You know where this story is going. I know, but I feel like <laughs> it, it always gets, gets worse. But I feel like you know, being into politics and being into school is not something that we should. You know, I don't think that's a bad thing. It's no. true. She hasn't yeah. strayed from the path yet. She is a good person at the moment. Uh, she was a good student as well, but she did deeply miss her family. So two of her brothers who were attending a school nearby would often come and visit. And when they would visit her, they would bring their friend Arthur Murphy, who was this tall, Ooh. blonde, blue-eyed Ooh. theology student from Wycliffe College. Oh. And Emily was smitten. Yeah. It wasn't appropriate for her to see Arthur alone, but what would happen is her brothers would make arrangements to pick her up from school, and then the two of them would go off on their own while <gasps> Emily got to stay with Murphy. Oh, or my goodness. with Arthur Murphy. Yeah. Yeah. And then Arthur and Emily, they would often go, like, canoeing, or they would visit, like, public gardens, and they would go on their cute little dates. I would also like to add that it's probably pretty inappropriate because Arthur is 11 years older than Emily. Oh, my God. Which means that he's like 26 and she's about 15 at the time. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, that's not cool. No wonder <laughs> she wasn't allowed to be with him alone. <laughs> yeah. It's like, how dare you keep me from my love? It's like, he's a grown God. man. Yeah, he's Yikes. a man. You're a child. <laughs> yeah, like 15. Like, Welcome to history. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Regardless, their friendship blossomed into a romance, and four years later, after her graduation, they were married in 1887. Oh so my I, goodness. I think they got married as soon as it was legal. Yeah. Like, as soon as she was 18, Boo. they got married. It doesn't get, like, less worse for me, even with it's a long time ago. Like, I still feel like... Yeah, it's cringy. Well, it's just like... I get, I always get it from, like, the woman's perspective, but it's just, like, what, like, self-respecting man who was, like, in his late 20s is going after, like, a 15-year-old girl? Like, it's just, like, first of all, like, what do you yeah. have in common? Like, nothing. You have nothing in common. Like, nothing. You, Even then, like, you, you have nothing, nothing in common. common. Like, it doesn't get easier with time. No. Yeah. I, I literally, I went to an all-girls school. I only I participated in all-female activities. Like, I didn't even meet a boy until I was, like, 25, <laughs> quite frankly. She didn't know they existed. Yeah, like, it's yeah. like a unicorn. Yeah, it's like you've heard of them, but are they real? Yeah, <laughs> so Emily affectionately referred to Arthur, uh, who would eventually go on to be a minister in the Anglican Church, as the Padre, so which is Spanish for dad. Yeah. So she literally calls him daddy. Yeah. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. <laughs> But Emily thrived in her role as a pastor's wife. She took a lot of pride in her husband's growing reputation as a preacher. Emily was a warm and loving wife. She prided herself on wearing her emotions on her sleeve, and she continued to do this when she eventually became a mother. So they have two daughters pretty quickly, uh, Evelyn and Kathleen. And she felt it was far better to be honest and straightforward with her children. So she's like the type of mom that doesn't let you think that Santa Claus is okay. real. That's a little sad. Aww. She's gonna, she's like, we're gonna be friends. What and a I'm bummer. gonna be real with you. It's a mistake. <laughs> During Emily's third pregnancy, she tripped and fell, causing a premature birth of their third daughter, Madeline. Madeline never grew strong and died as an infant. 
Emily was only consoled when their fourth child, Doris, was born three years later. Oh, gosh. That's so sad. Doris. I know. That is sad. So she very quickly kind of falls into this role of being – she's very educated, but she is a wife and a mother, and, like, that's what her role is, and she takes a lot of pride in that. I feel like we kind of, like, forget about, like, the trauma of women in, like, the years past and, like, how childbirth – I mean, like, obviously childbirth is still, like, really scary – but well, it's yeah but it was like way more dangerous though. that's yeah, what, that's my point like that it was just we just did uh we just did sorry we just did the midwife episode and it was traumatizing and like i try not to think about the things that we discussed in that episode there's like this whole part about like where was it grace that they go into the tents and they just have a baby alone in a tent it's one of the indigenous communities up north, in, wasn't up, it? Up north, yeah. It's one of there's a specific like in, Inuit group that their birthing tradition yeah. traditionally Wait, would have been like by a woman herself? is fully isolated in a tent yeah. and she gives birth by herself. Stop. Yeah, yeah, and the doctor is allowed outside the tent. The, well, the midwife, the midwife is allowed outside the tent to like give instructions, but is not allowed in the tent. Oh yeah. my god! And that's I was insane. like, um, excuse me, no. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> yeah, there's another one where like another it was another um kind of it was an it was another indigenous culture. I can't remember where, but they have a birthing sack, and so you just kind of like put a moss bag over you, and then just like give birth in this moss bag. Oh yeah, that oh does not God. sound fun to me. Um, no. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, it's it, and it's true. Like, there's just sort of. It's in Victorian culture and Edwardian Canada, mm-hmm. there is this expectation that you are going to lose children and you yeah. just kind of have to emotionally prepare for that. Because I think when we think about the past and the fact that infant mortality was so high, we tend to think of parents as just kind of being emotionally distant from their children in general. But it's yeah. really not the case. Like, it really is very no. traumatizing for mothers and fathers when they lose children. And most couples will go through that if they have a significant number of children. Oh, 100%. And I, I mean, I've, like, especially with that episode, but, you know, previously I've thought about it before because I was really sick when I was born. And if I had been born even, like, 25 years before I was, like, I am probably, like, wouldn't have made it, like, as a baby. Um, and it's just like medicine is so cool people <laughs> medical advancements are awesome it's almost like we should listen to doctors it's crazy yeah, it's crazy. and like wear our masks yeah uh, so as this young family grew so did the young nation of canada emily kept pace with the times and the social changes around her she was a believer in women taking a bigger role in society especially in the church given her husband's position Once she recommended that women served on church vestries, and when she did this, the minister objected so violently that he threatened to resign if women were given the privilege. Her husband? Not her husband, but just a minister present. The 24-year-old Mrs. Murphy replied, Sir, you present us with a terrible alternative. I have no doubt, however, that we should become reconciled to your loss in time. She's just like, oh, that's so sad. You want to resign. It's so sad. (laughs) (laughs) Miss you. Bye. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) Even Arthur couldn't escape Emily's religious debates. So she's just fighting all the time. Yeah. All the time. 
go girl get it she <laughs> always said that she knew just enough scripture to be troublesome <laughs> that's funny the family temporarily lived in england when arthur was invited to preach there Emily was writing in her journal every day and remarking on some of the misconceptions that English people had about Canadians. So basically, English people think all Canadians are bumpkins, and that's how they treat Emily and Arthur when they're there. These perceptions rubbed Emily the wrong way, and she decided to air her views (laughs) under a pen name, uh, which is Janie Canuck, which is what is mentioned in the Heritage Minute. Yeah. Essentially, there had already been a Johnny Canuck, which was a pen name for a different author, and he wrote editorial pieces about ca- Canada and Canadian politics. And so she did a spinoff of that as a woman and giving like a woman's perspective on all of that. That's cool. Her frank observations were a breath of fresh air. There were scores of English people abroad, and they criticized Canada for its gruffness and bad manners. During their time in Europe, the Murphys saw two very different perspectives, privilege and poverty. The experience made a lasting impression on the couple, and when the family returned to Canada, they settled in Toronto, and the editor of the National Monthly asked Janie Canuck to write letters on women's issues. Eventually, as literary editor, Emily stopped giving homemaking tips and started concentrating on heavier topics. Hardship struck the family when Arthur contracted typhoid and hovered near death for weeks. Emily increased her writing to support the family, working late into the nights. Worry and work overload took its toll, and soon Emily was also sick. The couple was then struck with the worst blow yet. Their six-year-old daughter, Doris, died of diphtheria, and so heartbroken, Emily poured herself into her work, writing an article entitled The Dead Child. She ended up publishing four very popular books and personal sketches. Uh, They're entitled The Impressions of Janie Canuck Abroad, Janie Canuck in the West, Open Trails, and Seeds of Pine. Do we know what diphtheria is? Uh, What is diphtheria? Good question. It sounds like an old-timey disease. Oh, really? Right? I know it's like an encampment disease. So, like, soldiers during World War I and World War II could get diphtheria pretty easily. Um, but yeah, I'm not actually sure exactly what it is. Um, it's a bacterial infection. If you're Canadian, you probably got a vaccine for it at some point. Didn't even know it. Been a child or a teen, and you, it's a respiratory tract infection um, that's transmitted through through people like talking to each other, drinking off water bottles, Ugh. kissing. It's like meningitis, kind of. But yeah, so basically, Emily is. She becomes an author to, out of initially out of her own desire to become one, but then she winds up doing it to support the family financially when Arthur gets sick, and then she further pursues it as a distraction from the death of her child. Yeah. She's going through a rough time. Like, I can't even imagine. Like, you've already lost one child, you're, you've lost another, and your husband's, like, presumably still, like, very ill. And she's, yeah. like, 25. Um. So we're now kind of in... The early 1900s. So I think she's a bit older. She's probably in her, like, 20s. Like, late 20s. Early okay. 30s. Yeah. I don't know how people recover from that. Like, yeah. I know. Yeah. And then you're just, yeah, that is sort of the expectation is you very much, like, grieve in private. Yeah. Yeah. And then you move on. Especially for someone like Arthur, who Arthur does recover, but then he goes on to be, like, continue being a minister. So you're, like, a public figure in the town. 
So Emily and Arthur were desperate to escape the grief that they felt from the loss of Doris. And so one of Emily's brothers, who had moved out to Manitoba, encouraged her to do the same. Oh, cool. So the family left everything behind to start a new (laughs) life in the prairies. Katie's like, gonna kill me. I love the prairies. The prairies are a great place to be. Not are they gonna though. go build? Are they gonna go build a little uh, soddy house, Grace? <laughs> no, we're a little past sod houses, okay. but you know, that's that's what we know of the prairies. Yeah, sod the, house. Like, all I know, little house on the prairie. Yeah, like that's yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so the family settled in Swan River. Do you know where Swan River? I do is know where maybe? Swan River is, <laughs> and I'm not really sure why why you would ever want to go there, but that's maybe should be omitted. <laughs> <laughs> So apparently it's because Arthur worked in uh, the timber limits. So he's like a, now he's acting as a merchant, like selling timber. Okay. Mm-hmm. Very busy. So he's a, he's a, he's a minister timber merchant? Yeah. Good for sounds him. like, sounds like a front for drugs to me. <laughs> yeah, sounds like he's a minister timber merchant. Yeah. Hollow logs. That was an episode of Scooby-Doo. It was. They it were like selling. <laughs> it was they were like stealing gold or something by like hollowing out logs. And oh my then, god! You know, they would have gotten away with it <laughs> if it, if it for, wasn't for they the. Gotten... <laughs> <laughs> were for those kids and their dog. <laughs> so Arthur is now a Scooby Doo villain, and eventually <laughs> he made enough money that he could send their two daughters to college in Winnipeg. That's very oh. unsurprising, given his line of work. <laughs> meanwhile emily was still writing by reviewing on average 21 books a month wow that's got to be a lie there's no way you're reading that many books and authentically reviewing them no she's skimming she's she's skimming skimming for sure she's reading you know the front material back page material that's it (laughs) i like the color there are a lot of words which is good words are good (laughs) words are good for books She balanced the accounts, purchased supplies, and helped build a hospital in the community in her spare time. So in the spare time, she's just building hospitals. <laughs> in all her spare time. Despite reading 21 books a month and yeah, editing them. Despite reading. She's yeah. got an abundance of spare time. Cool, cool, cool. Like, <laughs> yeah. how do I cool, cool, cool. get that same work-life balance? I, I, what's a secret? <laughs> Let me know. The turn of the century is so weird. <laughs> The key is not reading the book. (laughs) The key is not doing your work and focusing on the hospital. And your husband being a drug dealer. That's how you do it. (laughs) Maybe she had some help around the house. Yeah. (laughs) But Arthur became restless in his newfound stability and decided to sell everything they had so the couple could move to Edmonton. I love that. What? I like he he comes home and he's like, dear, we're doing great. Let's start all over again <laughs> okay yeah That's... i like that they're like i'm sick of swan lake you know where we should go <laughs> <laughs> no literally i'm someone's gonna be really mad about that no we have hot takes about every city i'm, I'm oh, gonna be honest yeah. though like edmonton's definitely a, a step up from swan river i was 100%. gonna say they're gonna go to edmonton he's gonna get tired and he's gonna be like scarborough <laughs> <laughs> i mean at least they have the mall yeah. Well, I guess they didn't That's at this true. point, but um, maybe his drug yeah. money helped found it. <laughs> yeah. Who could say? Oh, that's why they left, because he got caught for the drugs. Oh, oh. duh. Duh. Yeah. That's oh, why he's honey, like, we, we gotta leave. run. We're on Babe, the we gotta move tonight. We gotta move tonight. 
pack your things we're going she's like as long as i can read on the way (laughs) i have to read all these books well we've got a long journey it's like what like 12 20 hours i don't even know how long it would take to get to edmonton but it's not a quick journey so plenty of time for a quick one i mean imagine i could probably take the train Mm -hmm. does the train run through swan river with all your stuff i don't know but they sold all their stuff i just know they just sold it yeah bye but anyways supposedly the cover is they're going because he had entered the coal mining and (laughs) real estate business so now he's a drug dealer a minister a coal miner and a real estate agent wow i'm exhausted just hearing that (laughs) yeah (laughs) so by now emily is 40 years old and both of her children are now adults and independent so this is when Emily really starts getting active in organizing women's groups and she started contacting other kind of like isolated housewives so they could meet and discuss ideas and plan projects. So I think initially it's not even politically oriented. It's just like, I need friends. Yeah. So let's get together with it's some just other a, housewives. It's just a ladies night. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> In addition to these organizations, Emily began to speak openly and frankly about the disadvantaged and poor living conditions that surrounded their society. She had witnessed much hardship while traveling in the West. Emily met a woman who had been abandoned by her husband. The man had sold their farm and left her without a home or money. And legally, this woman had no rights to property. And this was the kind of discrimination that just incensed Emily. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think it's like maybe important here to like take a moment to like think about that like that women had no property rights and that if if like went if your husband abandoned you like that like you were just like you were sol like that was it yeah it's just like crazy yeah it's like never mind how demeaning it is to not be able to own property like think of how dangerous it is for those reasons yeah exactly when you're relying on men who are historically unreliable like 100 percent yeah, and by that phase, you know, if you're now married to your husband, I mean, at best, you can go back and be a burden to your parents. But it's probably more realistic that your parents have already passed away or are not capable of taking care of you. So now, yeah, you're just purely on your own. And God forbid potential. you have children to take care of also. Yeah. yeah, and the chances of you getting remarried are slim to none because you have no property, you have nothing to leverage mm-hmm. to make yeah. yourself desirable. Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. Yep. So because of this, Emily began to campaign to protect women's property rights. In 1915, the Alberta legislature passed the Married Woman's Home Protection Act. This gave women the right to file a caveat. This prevented the transfer, mortgage, or lease of a woman's home without her consent. Okay. So we're we're getting some stuff. In 1917, this was replaced by the Dower Act. It protected a woman's right to have one-third share in her husband's property. Emily's reputation as a woman's rights activist was established by this first political victory. Fantastic. Yeah. We're we're getting somewhere. Yeah. (laughs) Emily's success in the fight for the Dower Act, along with her work through the local Council of Women and her increasing awareness of women's rights, influenced her request for a female magistrate in the women's courts. What's the women's Sorry, court? Sorry, the women's court? So I believe, I, I'm now just realizing, it's like, oh, we brought on two law students <laughs> to have like this political one, or this uh, legal We're going to have some questions. Um, <laughs> no, that's totally fair. So 
from my understanding of it, women would go to a separate court for their legal issues in Alberta. I don't know if it's the same in all provinces, but in Alberta, so particularly women who are labeled like prostitutes or, you know, are committing feminine crimes, they would go to the women's right. court. What's a feminine crime? So something like prostitution, for example, oh, that is okay. gendered. Like, sure, sure. Yes, a man can be a prostitute, but when you say prostitute, you think woman. Sure, sure. Yeah. Okay. So that's largely what that courtroom deals with, um, are kind of like women in these questionable circumstances. In 1916, Emily, along with a group of women, attempted to observe a trial for women who were labeled as prostitutes and therefore were arrested. And this group of women and Emily Murphy were asked to leave the courtroom on the claims that the statements that were going to be made were not appropriate for mixed company. What? <laughs> so it's like, we're going to be talking about sex, and therefore women are not allowed in the room. Wow. So this is about women. So this is like, this is holding uh, like prostitutes in court, and mm -hmm. then saying that other women can't be there because we're going to be talking about sex, and that's like dirty and bad. Yes. And presumably, like, these women are being prosecuted, but it really probably should be the man who's paying for their services that are well, that's, prosecuted. Well, that's yeah. largely, or if well, that's, that's yeah. largely yeah. how we've here. changed the law now. Like, that's... With exceptions. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Of course. Of course. Of course. But that's that's exactly what I'm pointing out. That it's, like, it makes no sense. <laughs> this whole thing yeah. makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it winds up being that these crimes that are being committed by women as we already discussed in a society where if like a woman is abandoned by her husband she doesn't get anything right. you know they're being forced into these circumstances in a lot of cases and in addition to that they're getting the least sympathetic ear to hear what's happened to them so um, did emily say okay like did she leave uh, no, so sh this outcome was unacceptable to Emily. Yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, and she protested to the provincial attorney general. Uh, she stated, if the evidence is not fit for mixed company, then the government must set up a special court to preside over by women to try other women. Right. So now so she's saying, like, women in these circumstances, if it's not fixed for men and women, then it should just be women. Right. In the room. Emily's request was approved, and she became the first police magistrate in the British Empire. So they, they talk about that. So she's the first female judge in so British North America. did she go to law school? Like, is she, is she qualified? No. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> no. No. Okay, cool, It's cool. just history. Listen, listen. It's like, oh, you... Yeah. I'm all for it. Just it's asking like, a technical yeah. question. No, it seems like in history that if you want... If you actually, like, just want to do something, like, if you want to be a doctor... For, like, the early part of, like, especially when Canada first became a country, like, independent, it's like, oh, oh, you think that's interesting? You are now a doctor. Or you are now, insert a lawyer. You are now, insert a judge. Listen, um, that is a motto that I live my life by. I can get behind. <laughs> Wanted to have a podcast? Started a podcast. Am I a podcaster? Yeah. Not sure. Am I qualified? Yeah. Definitely not. <laughs> the creation of Canada is really just the secret. It's just like if you put it out into the world, it would yeah. help you. <laughs> it's like, I think I want a country. I would like my own court. Can, <laughs> I, can I be, can I have my own court and well. can I run it? Yes. 
Her appointment as judge, however, became the cause for her greatest adversity concerning women within the law. In her first case in Alberta on July 1st, 1916, she found the prisoner guilty. The prisoner's lawyer, named Erdley Jackson, called into question her right to pass sentence since she was not legally a person. The provincial Supreme Court denied the appeal. So this lawyer's like, hey, she's not a person. She can't pass sentences. And the provincial Supreme Court was like, that sounds like a lot of work to unpack. So we're going (laughs) to deny that appeal. (laughs) But this appeal stuck with Emily. Even though it had failed, it was true that under British law, she and all other women were not persons. Ooh. This understanding was based on a British common law ruling of 1876, which stated women are, were eligible for pains and penalties, but not rights and privileges. That seems fair. That seems fair. <laughs> so fair. You get all the crappy stuff. Yeah. Get all the bad none of the stuff. Benefit. None of the good stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can get payment for when bad things happen to you, but you don't get anything that could potentially prevent those bad things from happening in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> In 1917, she headed the battle to have women declared as persons in Canada and consequently qualified to serve in the Senate. So I th- the, the issue of being a senator is what's brought up in the Heritage Minute. And I think that is just used as like a case study. Like when you want to take something to court, the Supreme Court, you guys can probably uh, like explain this better or explain if I'm wrong. But, like, in a lot of cases, if you want to take something to the Supreme Court to have something challenged as a precedent case, you would just, like, she's like, I'm going to apply to be senator, even though they're going to tell me that I legally can't, so I can therefore, like, take it to a higher court. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, so there's, there's a few different ways to do this, right? So you can... Um, you might have heard of reference cases, references. We have lots of famous references. So there's a system in Canada where you can actually... You don't just have to bring an actual, well, you can bring a situation, but like a lot of things and big issues end up at the Supreme Court based on very specific, minute uh, understandings of them. Like the symbolic, the symbolic importance of the person's case is that you're talking about the definition of persons and whether it includes men and women. But what it's about is whether it's a senator. But you can ask like a little bit more general type questions in a reference case, which a reference is when you actually ask the court. You're saying, like, you're asking the court, what is the law on this? So the, the most recent high-profile examples of this now are, like, the Greenhouse Gas Pollution Pricing Act, the Federal Act, and those have been challenged all across the country by the conservative provincial governments. So those are, like, they're asking the court, like, is this constitutional? So in this case, do you know, was it a reference or was it just, like, a regular, was it just a challenge? So I'm not 100% sure. So do you have because- the name of the case? Because it will say usually says Edwards if it's in the name. Edwards. It's Edwards in Canada. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's Edwards. Yeah, I just wanted Canada. to make sure that yeah. this was the that's what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Katie. Sorry. No. <laughs> Ed- you're being I'm Sorry. literally gonna kill you. <laughs> Edwards in Edwards in Canada is like one of the most important cases ever for lots of reasons that we can talk about, but sorry. Well, we're gonna get all into Edwards in Canada. Yeah. Right we're gonna now. get there. Right now. So in 1919, Emily presided over the inaugural conference of the Federated Women's Institute of Canada, which passed a resolution calling for a female senator to be appointed. 
The National Council of Women and the Montreal Women's Club also supported the resolution, selecting Emily as their preferred candidate. So they're calling on the Canadian government to appoint a female senator, and they want it to be Emily Murphy. Emily began to work on a plan to ask for clarification of how women were regarded in the BNA Act and how they were to become senators. She enlisted the help of four other Albertan women, and on August 27th, uh, 1927, she and human rights activist and ex-MLA Nellie McClung, ex-MLA Louise McKinney, women's rights campaigner and author Henrietta Edwards, and sitting Alberta cabinet minister and MLA Irene Parlby signed the petition to the federal cabinet asking that the federal government refer the issue to the Supreme Court of Canada. Yeah, so that's a reference. Yeah. That we so have that is answer. a reference case? Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. The women's petition set out two questions, but the federal government reframed it as one, asking the Supreme Court, does the word person in Section 24 of the British North America Act include female persons? The campaign became known as the Persons Case and reached the Supreme Court of Canada in March 1928. The court held that women were not qualified to sit in the Senate. So the five women then appealed to the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council in Britain. On the 18th of October, 1929, in a decision called Edwards versus Canada, uh, Attorney General, the Privy Council declared that persons in Section 24 of the BNA Act of 1967 should be interpreted to include both males and females. Therefore, women were eligible to serve in the Senate. Like, I got chills. <laughs> <laughs> Like, oh, that's, I love that. <laughs> I like being persons. <laughs> I like having rights. It feels very petty that we had to go all the way to the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council to determine that women were persons. It's, yeah. it's yeah. beyond silly. I also, this maybe this is a little bit more, like, wonky, but I also want to bookmark that um, you, in this country, you still had to refer, uh, the highest court was actually not the Canadian Supreme Court, but the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council until yeah back in was Britain. the final court uh, of appeal until i think 49 wow wow and i think That's it's crazy. funny too that like i think ever like this decision kind of gets touted as being like canada's so progressive at this point but it's like canada wasn't progressive it was like england that came down well the privy council that came down and like yeah. made this progressive ruling like it wasn't canada's win like the supreme court was like no and the privy council said yes so i feel like that gets a little washed away in like the history of this case and then, and then in the verse, in the inverse, in defense of Canada, the BNA Act is not a Canadian law; it's a British Act. So we can blame them a little bit. <laughs> yeah, let's blame everyone <laughs> because it's it is a British law. There's another really big legal significance of the person's case beyond this. What is it? It's Olivia's gonna kill me because it's really nerdy, but it's the Living Tree Doctrine. I don't. I okay. don't know what that is. What is it? This is not. You like, have to tell this me. This is not interesting. Yes, it is. Unless you're like I'm a lawyer. Intrigued. This is okay. super interesting. This is no. This is interesting because because Grace. At least Look at I mean friend. I am I am the least the least um like academically educated person here. So I think it's like a good perspective to have like on these things. I have Grace and I like we are not lawyers. Like I am like I have a I have a bachelor and like that's all. 
And uh, yeah, no, tell me. Tell me about this living tree doctor. And okay. I want to know. When she tells you, tell me if you found it interesting. Okay. I'm ready. I'm just kidding. So- I'm just kidding. I'm just being a bit. <laughs> so the living tree doctrine, we won't get into the nitty gritty of the doctrine and how it's applied, but essentially in this case, they also determined that the, the significant, the really big significance of this case that like kind of reverberates is that the constitution is a living tree and it's supposed to be something the, the way it's written. It's written very broadly. You have very high minded type ideals and rights. It's supposed to be adaptable and supposed to be allowed to change and be progressive as society changes. So that's the living tree doctrine is that the constitution is a living tree that will um, like the foundation is the same. The roots are the same, but event, but it's okay that we can allow it to kind of change and adapt to our changing society and our changing values. And that it's sh- constitution shouldn't be completely set in stone and it should be, um, it should be progressive and it should be able to reflect in, in some ways, the values of the time. And that's what happens here. And, and the, the recognition of that in this case is that, you know, when the BNA act was written, and persons was used in section 24 you know what the person who wrote that probably didn't intend for it to include women they probably didn't and that's okay but in this society we think that women should be should be persons and that's that's kind of the um like the constitutional significance that's applied now to the constitution we have you know the constitution act of 18 1982 we still cite the living tree doctrine from edwards like this is a this is a really important legal principle beyond just the fact that yes now women are persons was that so but boring think, was that okay. so boring no, I, found that, I found that interesting let me I also, that was really cool. let me also just say that um the reason why this is important like important to know about and be aware of is because you hear this conversation like a lot in the news um especially with uh like american who have a different approach to their constitution and they take um a much more like literal approach of of how their constitution was written and what is in their constitution is how exactly how it's written is how it should be enforced and so it's like this this juxtaposition between the living tree as kate explained and like the lit like literally taking like what did the people who are writing the constitution mean is actually like important in your own media literacy in unpacking like cases um and i'm and i hope that you guys like when you hear like stories in the future you'll be like oh living tree got it I can tear down any constitutional debate now. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. No, I love that. No, that's really cool. That's very I, cool. Well, yeah, it's like it's allowed us to make like really important like strides in society. Like you think yeah. of um, like euthanasia. Like you have the Carter case of a, from a few years ago. We had the exact very very similar case in the Rodriguez case come before the court. Um, I think in the nineties, and it like it was completely not considered. But and the people who wrote Right to Life never thought it meant right to choose life. They just didn't. But now we have the Carter case and we're, th- and we're thinking about euthanasia and whether you should um, apply that in a different way. Like that's, that's the living tree, right? That's us now in 2014 coming back to this, this situation in Carter and com- going up a completely different way than we did in Rodriguez. And the living tree allows for that. Despite this ruling, Emily never actually served in the Senate. So I think that's something that doesn't really come out in the Heritage Minute. They kind of show her sitting in quite like a regal seat and you're like oh yeah she's the senator now it's like she was never a senator because when this ruling passes there's no open seat on the senate so they can't just appoint her the next time there was an opening they did appoint a woman but the opening was in the seat was in quebec 
So the first woman that was actually appointed to the Senate, uh, she was a philanthropist, and her name was Karen Wilson, and this was in 1930. And then there was one other opportunity where Emily could have been appointed to the Senate, and it was in Alberta. However, the previous senator who died, he was a Catholic, and Emily was Protestant, and that was a really tricky balance to maintain an equal or at least semi-equal number of Catholics and Protestants on the Senate. And so Emily was looked over for a a Catholic man who, (laughs) his name is Robert Burns, and he was a meatpacker, and he was appointed to the Senate instead of Emily. What a slap. And then by that point, there was never another opening in her lifetime. But was was that, like, socially accepted? Was it like, oh, 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 but you're Protestant, so, like... Yeah, oh, yeah. No. I mean, it was very much... She was... We'll, we'll get into it a little bit later, but she was very hurt by the fact that she was overlooked. But it was also, like, that is the biggest divide in society at this time, is, like, divides between Catholics and Protestants and having to try and maintain those... I guess, like, the biggest divide between people that were considered appropriate to be on the Senate uh, was between Catholics and Protestants. A big divide there. So Nellie has a really diverse career that I think we really wind up focusing on her women's rights campaigns. But she was also, she was kind of like the first Nancy Reagan. She initiated, like, the first war on drugs. She had, she was very opposed to narcotics. And in her views and many other views uh, on drugs, she believed that they were deeply interwoven um, with racial issues happening in Canada. And that's because Emily Murphy, like a lot of people, was a big old racist. In her series, Janie Canuck, part of that series, she wrote something called The Black Candle. And it used extensive anecdotes and expert opinions. Um, the Black Candle depicts an alarming picture of drug abuse in Canada, detailing Emily's understanding of the use and effects of opium, cocaine, and pharmaceuticals, as well as the new menace, marijuana. The new menace. Da, da, da. Oh. <laughs> Emily's concern with drugs began with her starting to come into contact with people she described as... Uh, disproportionate amounts of chinese people so she's walking around society and she's like there's a lot of chinese disproportionate to what in her just opinion (laughs) to her family yeah (laughs) and then she's seeing that in the courtroom as well so from her perspective as a as a magistrate there's too many chinese people in the court and i it's not because they're being unfairly persecuted it's because chinese people are bad Okay, so it's, it's, she's specifically talking about in the courtroom, not, not generally in society. Well, yeah, yeah, she's saying that there's lots, I think what she's saying is that yeah. there's lots of Chinese people around, and there's, and they're all ending up in the courtroom hmm. because they've done terrible things, which they're bad. probably they have not and are being wrongly accused because okay. welcome to history. Welcome to now. In addition to professional expertise and her own observations, Emily was also given a tour of opium dens in Vancouver's Chinatown by local police detectives. So she's like on tour collecting and reporting information for this series, and she goes to an opium den. Vancouver at the time was in the midst of a moral panic over drugs that was part of an anti-Oriental campaign that participated and winds up... uh, concluding with the Chinese Immigration Act of 1923. 
She was also concerned with the involvement of Assyrians, Greeks, and uh, off-color word coming, Negroes, in the drug trade. So she's like, all these weird racial minorities, they're the ones doing the bad stuff. They're the problem. They, they are the problem. Not my drug-dealing husband. <laughs> race permeates the black candle and is intrinsically intertwined with the drug trade and addiction in emily's analysis yet she is ambiguous in her treatment of non-whites in one passage she explains she chastises whites who use the chinese as scapegoats while elsewhere she refers to the chinese man as a visitor in this country so she's also very back and forth so sometimes she's like it's not fair to say that like it's Chinese are just the scapegoats for all of the drug problems that are happening in Canada. But at the same time, Chinese people are not citizens of this country and they are visitors to this land. So can I ask a question? It sounds like the way mm -hmm. she's talking about like drugs that it's like it wasn't like addiction wasn't really known at this point. But am I mistaken? Yeah, I mean, I think they know that addiction is a thing. So especially after World War One, you have a lot of people coming home that were treated with opium for chronic pain due to injuries. And I think that's when you start to see like, oh, drugs have like, and pharmaceuticals especially, have entered middle class life. Like you suddenly have people that before would have been you know living a normal middle class life but now either due to like mental or physical trauma they're drug addicts um and so i think there there is a notion of addiction but where the root of that addiction is like i don't think they think of it as a physiological issue it's just like this person they can overcome this through kind of mental uh fortitude and strength it's like it's like a moral failing, which is yeah, still how, exactly. like, war on drugs folk still see this, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And that's very much how she she is really talking about this in the same rhetoric of a war on drugs. So, like, she doesn't see, you know, it's it's the drug addiction that is the scourge to society. It's not Chinese people, but the drugs are intrinsically linked to the presence of the Chinese people being here. So she kind of walks this weird fine line between blaming the Chinese people but not blaming them for the appearance and rise of opium in Canada. She did see that drugs victimized everyone and members of all race perpetuate the drug trade. Uh, at the same time, she does not depart from the dominant view of middle-class whites that, at the time, races were discrete, biologically determined categories and then were naturally ranked in a certain hierarchy. So certain races are going to be more inclined to being influenced by drugs versus other ones. Race is complicated. That's a lot to unpack. <laughs> a little problematic, to say the least. And she's not alone in this, right? Of the famous five of the person's case. They all have some serious baggage. Oh, Nellie McClung? Like, she's all about eugenics. Yeah, she's like a eugenicist. Yeah. I went to I went to a person's... People, we still have them in the legal community. Like, I went to, like, a person's day. Because person's day is, like, a holiday. It's not a holiday. Um, in Canada, like, breakfast and... 
the speaker was like, how are we talking about anything about the fact that we're having this breakfast and it's called Person's Day and all five of these women are eugenicists? And it had made for a very uncomfortable brunch, but it was kind of like, yeah, why are we all here? And why <laughs> are we calling it this? Brunch. As no, you're was, eating your great. poached eggs, you're yes. like, oh. It's like, hmm. <laughs> Is there, there's got to be another way that we could like celebrate women in the legal field, but yeah, and, and it's, it's true. Like, like I think it's a very common attribute of wasp society at this time. Like this is just the dominant view, and it's the norm. It's not to like say that you you should swipe it under the rug, obviously, but it it's not surprising that all five of the women who had the access to resources to defend women's rights in Britain had the the financial and educational resources to do so also prescribed to these what at the time were viewed as progressive views of race which was that we can scientifically categorize race and then make judgments from that like I guess like it's just it's always complicated and I wonder if there's like a better well sort of like what you said it's like there's a better way that we can deal with like the successes with and separate them from the people more like you know maybe we need to like get rid of that conversation but talk about the case like you know like it's it's comp it's complicated and i it's like would be great or maybe we just have to talk about it together like maybe that's the important part that we just we talk about it together and we don't separate the two and we say like this is the good and this is the bad and let's keep talking about the bad because the bad is that kind of important too you know yeah. i don't know and I think it always comes down to great human achievements are always accomplished by humans. Yeah. And humans are very complicated and humans aren't flawless individuals. And again, it's not to like write off those bad things, but it you can't make you can't idealize those people to the point that they don't have flaws. Yeah. Yeah. Um mm-hmm. and so it's important and- to talk about those things. And maybe we don't have to idealize them, sir, idolize them as much either. Like, we can talk about the accomplishment, we can talk about the case, but we don't have to talk about the famous five as these great heroes because they have serious problems. Like, like the fact that they were racist and eugenicists. Yeah, mm-hmm. and like I was touching on earlier, it's about, like, not erasing uncomfortable parts of history, but just, like, moving forward and learning from those and saying, you know, the the group, like, this famous five did a lot of really incredible work especially for women but yet there were a lot of major falls like flaws and shortcomings too to their thought process and as long as we can recognize that and say like yeah that's wrong um i think that that helps us like better kind of understand the importance of them in history so emily murphy has these perceptions of race which then kind of extend into this new trendy science of the day eugenics she supported ideas of selective breeding and compulsory sterilization of those individuals who were considered mentally deficient she believed that the mentally and socially inferior reproduced more than human thoroughbreds and appealed to the alberta legislative assembly for forced sterilization So in the petition, she wrote that mentally defective children were a menace to society, an enormous cost to the state. Science is proving that mental defectiveness is a transmittable hereditary condition. And they were like, hell yeah, this is a great petition. We love this. And so that's what leads eventually to the Sterilization Act 
in Alberta. So it's the Sexual Sterilization Act. It's not repealed until 1972. And thousands of Albertan men and women are forced to be sterilized under this act. Nellie was also, Nellie McClung was also part of this act being put in place. And of course, a disproportionate number of those thousands of people who are sterilized were Indigenous women specifically. Yeah. Which is... Wait, but why are the women being sterilized? Because, like, that's, like, really, like, inhumane. And it's, like, for men, it's, like, a, you know, a little snip. Like, why would you pick the women? Like, why? Well, what why, What kind of sterilization are we talking about, right? Like, vasectomies are a quick snip. But, like, I don't, what are the, what were they actually doing? I don't think it's don't chemical know. castration. Um, I, I, to be honest, I did not look into the details that's, of that's how they reasonable. sterilize Why people. would you? Why, yeah. why would you? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Either this way. This episode is already yeah. hard enough. <laughs> yeah. Uncategorically terrible. Sorry. Yeah. No. And it's definitely a big part of the reason that they sterilize women is because there's the perception in this time that women are more sexually. Deviant. Yeah, exactly. So specifically indigenous women, it's a huge connotation that they carry in a lot of academic circles is the idea that indigenous women are the the worst thing that they can do to impact society is through their kind of like sexual looseness, which is great. And by great, I mean terrible. So kind of reverting back to her senator career so she's really deeply hurt when she was not nominated for the senate the second time around and she basically knew at this point that she would never be on the senate because she's 63 at this time she resigned from her position as a police magistrate this year so she's like so hurt that she's just like i'm done there's nothing else for me to achieve i'm gonna retire over the years she served as an executive on 40 different organizations But it was her humanity and compassion in the courtroom that lawyers and clerks most admired. It seems Emily had a premonition of her own death. So this is the weird, strange last category where it seems like it seems like she knew she was going to die the day she died. This is not where I thought we were going. (laughs) (laughs) There's always a weird last twist. She was getting sick with increasing frequency. In December of 1932, she wrote a farewell letter to her family that she locked away in the safety deposit box. On the day of her death, which was October 26, 1933, she dropped into the police court in time to hear the last case before noon's adjournment. Former opponent, Erdley Jackson, so this was the guy that was like, she can't pass sentence because she's not a person. So this guy is still a lawyer. And he got up and announced to the court that they were all honored by the presence of Mrs. Emily Murphy, police magistrate and judge. So he, like, stops the court so everyone stands up and, like, acknowledges her presence. We've made some progress. We've made a little bit of progress, yeah. That would be the end of the movie. If If this was the movie, we'd, like, cut to black there. That evening, she dined with her daughter, Evelyn, and her husband, Arthur. Uh, Arthur's still alive? Oh, Arthur's kicking. He's still around. The Padre. How old is he at this point? Yeah. Uh, she is 63 or 64. So he's 11 years older than her. She's like 75. Yeah, he's 75. In the 30s. That's old. That's old. Yeah. Um, and Linnea, you'll probably appreciate this. But in a weird Heritage Minute crossover, Arthur's friend was running late to so that they could go watch the Edmonton grads game. Oh. 
who it's like an all women's basketball team. They're like the most winningest basketball team ever in history. In the whole in the whole world. Men's, women's, globally. Yeah. And so Arthur is like running late for this. And so eventually he's like, all right, bye. Finally, I'm going to see the basketball game. Um, so before she went to bed, she asked Evelyn the score of the basketball game because it was on the radio. And that was the last conversation Emily Murphy ever had. Wow. And then Emily Murphy died in her sleep that night at the age of 64. That's such an epic last day. <laughs> it's like she knew it. It would be funny if that's what she was doing every single day, though, just in case. Oh, yeah. It's just like, I better go somewhere so people can acknowledge me. <laughs> so people can tell me yeah. how great I am. So the city of the city of Edmonton and the country of Canada mourned her loss Uh Former Prime Minister, or current Prime Minister, I guess, R.B. Bennett, sent a letter of condolence to the family. At the wake, two prostitutes placed roses in her casket, which the family chose not to remove. So they they let them Some progressive down. steps. Good, good. <laughs> in a letter to Evelyn, Nellie McClung wrote, Sometimes in school, a very industrious pupil who has excelled the others is allowed to quit at noon. And it seems to be the case with your mother. Basically saying that, like, she did so well that she was allowed to quit school early. <laughs> That's why she went before her time. Yeah, That would be a special letter for her daughter to receive. Mm-hmm. But now, like, in, like, whatever, 2021, it does seem crazy that someone could die in their sleep at, like, 65. As a final piece. So Arthur is beside himself with grief. Um, as he, he should be. Inconsolable. As he should be. Absolutely. They've been together since she was 15. She's 65. You know, they've. I, I, I watched you grow up. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> so eventually, because he just can't be in Edmonton anymore, he has, like, too many memories associated with Emily, he eventually moved to Vancouver to be with his two daughters. Arthur lived to the ripe old age of 92, living 16 years past wow. Emily. Wow. So he lived almost into the 50s. Yeah, yeah. And that's funny, because, like, 30s is still the past, but then, like, once you get kind of, like, late 40s, the 50s, you're like, oh, this person, like, lived into the modern day. Yeah. That's yeah. really strange. And what do her but daughters yeah. do? Like, are they, what are they, are they alive? Today? I'm not sure if they're still alive today. It would surprise me if they were. I, I think that, I mean, they were well-educated, middle-class women, but I don't know if they did anything in particular of note i didn't see any kind of note that they you know went on and followed in their mother's footsteps or or what have you i know evelyn at the time anyways evelyn is not married and kathleen is so kathleen has a husband and children okay um but maybe evelyn was a spinster going around who knows i always think it's like interesting to like look up then the descendants and like see where people are I don't know why, but I was, like, so into that. And, like, find their Instagram. I'm like, what are they doing? Well, yeah, like, Tommy Tommy Douglas is, like, the grandfather of, like, Keith or Sutherland. Yeah. Yeah. So like, weird. there's just really bizarre connections. <laughs> Liv, are you talking about looking at Margaret Trudeau's kids' Instagrams? Remember you were obsessed with oh, them? Oh, my God. I was, like, <laughs> I went on a deep rabbit hole, and I found, like, The everyone. ones from the other marriage she was really yeah. into. Well, I wanted to. What was to... his name? Kyle? Yeah, Kyle and Alicia. I wanted to, <laughs> yeah. And I wanted to find out, like, what, what they were doing and if they were friends with the, the boys. They are, spoiler alert, they are friends. Yeah, 
It's all good. And Alicia, and I tagged Alicia in one of the pictures, or I tagged Margaret or something, and she liked it, so. <laughs> We're basically best friends now, so. <laughs> I'm very jealous. Just do a deep dive, tag all of the descendants, one of them will like it. Your best friends. <laughs> Done. Rebuild their family tree for them. Oh. And that's how <laughs> you become Instagram famous. Duh. <laughs> That was a good episode to have uh, the gals from Just Watch Me on for Grace. Good choices. I know. I'm going to pretend like I knew this all along, but I totally different. Oh, my God. Did you actually not know? I thought you knew. I assume that's why. Yeah. I was like, oh, Ellie Murphy. Perfect. Person's case. Great. No, well, I knew that you guys were like, I, I knew that you guys were law students, but I'm just an idiot and didn't make the connection. <laughs> also, Grace, I have to correct you because Olivia Please is actually do. a lawyer as of today. I'm actually a lawyer as of oh today. Oh my gosh, today? Olivia was called to the bar today yes, by email. You. Thank yeah. you. We're so honored. So it's all like canceled this year because of COVID. So it's like very sad. So, um, so basically like you have to sign your role. So I signed Katie's and was very exciting because her family clapped and everything um and also we're texting so you know a little bit of call me a little bit of call me and but then literally today i just got an email from the law society being like you're a lawyer and i was like yay congratulations usually like you'd walk across the stage there's and a huge like, ceremony yeah. <laughs> it's a whole thing now we get an email and uh and all the hard work and all the hard work feels like it paid off for that one email <laughs> Well, I'm so glad that this uh, that this collaboration finally happened. Yeah, me too. me too. Thank you for coming on to the show, Olivia and Katie. Or is it Liv? I guess it's well, Liv like and that's Katie. our like stage fake name. It's our stage name. Yeah, we're just like stage name. Yeah, because we felt oh like gosh, oh, we Olivia, should get stage names. We felt names. like Olivia and Katie was like a bit of a mouthful, so we went with Liv and Kate. Well, Liv and Katie, thank you so much for coming on the show and speaking to all of the listeners of the Minute Women podcast. Now I'll give you guys the opportunity, you ladies, to uh, to share where people can find your podcast and listen to it. Yes. So we're available literally everywhere that you listen to podcasts. Um, at, we're the Just Watch Me podcast, in case you forgot. And um, you can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Just Watch Me Pod. So come over and, you know, give us a follow. Give us, throw us a like. We'd love to hear from you. Give and us some love. You, and you guys are coming on our podcast um, in June. So everyone yes. needs to come over to the Just Watch Me podcast. Stay tuned for that. And we haven't decided on the topic yet. So you'll have to wait and see. Perfect. Ooh, so exciting. Thanks so much for having us. This was so much fun. Oh, good. I love getting to talk with the person's case. I know Olivia is an SMG, <laughs> but I love any chance to talk about it. So this is the awesome. difference between me and Kate. Like, I I am, like, I went to law school with a very specific goal in my mind. I'm an entertainment lawyer, but, like, Katie, like, loves the law. Like, Katie No, I don't loves love the law. the law. No, I'm not, like, nerdy, She's lying. I... No, she, no, you are. You are, and it's okay. Embrace it. Like, she's genius, <laughs> super smart. And that's, I you like know, the law. I like the law. Loves it. She loves it. She loves it. See, that's the thing. I feel like in the in our in our corresponding relationship, I am the Kate and Linnea is the Liv for sure. Because I love history and I could do like these really awful nerdy deep dives in every single episode. And Linnea is a good you to, in to ground yeah. me and like let's mm -hmm. get back on to, to the topic. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's like so natural now. I just like, like yeah, like I can just back. like feel it. I'm like, and we're back. 
you really need that person. I think that's that's probably the the breakdown with us too. Yeah. She, I'm like I'm like let's do the Walkerton water crisis, and she was like, I don't think <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> and maybe I was like, no. it's fascinating. It's environmental. It's health. It's all these things. She's like, we're not doing that. <laughs> like Katie, our most popular episode is about Shania Twain. <laughs> And thank you so much to all of you for listening to another episode of the Minute Women podcast. As always, you can find us anywhere you find podcasts and listen. You can also find us on Instagram at Minute Women Podcast and Facebook at the same name and Twitter at The Minute Women. We also have a website that has recently been updated and filled with all of our info, all of our episodes, new pictures. It's looking very, very nice. Thank you, Grace. And that's at www.minutewomenpodcast.ca. Yeah, and make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you listen to us on. Make sure you download the episodes and rate and review the podcast if that is an option on your platform. Well, yeah, thank you for joining us, guys. And thank you to all the listeners for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.